I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 14th episode of IntroVets podcast. Hello. Today, we are going to present another case. An interesting one. All right, JJ. The case is... A 10-week-old Border Collie mix puppy. The puppy has presented for acute onset of unilateral vestibular signs, in coordination and head tilt. The patient had been normal when last examined by a veterinarian four days previously and had received distemper parvo vaccination at that time. The day following vaccination, the patient exhibited lethargy and weakness. Signs had worsened gradually up to the point where the pet is now presenting on emergency. Mm. When the pet was presented on emergency, he was vocalizing and had nystagmus and an abnormal gait. Nystagmus is the word describing unusual eye movements, rapid eye movements, either back and forth or up and down. It could also be rotational. Mm. Creepy. Those movements are not um, purposeful. It's uh, something that Uh, the patient can't control. The owners had purchased the puppy from a litter of non-puppies about two weeks previously. The litter of puppies was housed in an outdoor barn. The vaccination status of the dam was unclear. And following purchase, the patient had lived mostly indoors, but with access to a garage. So on physical examination, the patient was quiet, alert, and responsive. He was found to be in good body condition. He was able to ambulate on his own so he could walk around, but ataxia was noted. So we're seeing in coordination, kind of walking like he's drunk. Mm. There was a head tilt to the left, and he would occasionally fall in that same direction. There was horizontal nystagmus with fast face to the right. Nystagmus, again, is that involuntary eye movement. So his eyes are basically going back and forth, back and forth, side to side. Creepy. Other cranial nerve responses were normal. Conscious proprioception and reflexes were all normal in all limbs. And when the patient was palpated over the left bulla, uh, he inconsistently yielded a possible pain response. But when the external ear canals were evaluated, they appeared normal and both tympanic membranes were intact. So... We are going to go through uh, and make a list of differentials for this patient presenting with neurologic signs. Before we do that, though, I'm going to just give a quick side note. So anytime we have a case presenting with vestibular signs, it's really important to try to classify the signs as consistent with either peripheral or central vestibular disease. This helps to narrow down the differential list. Now, we're not going to go into a full discussion of how that type of classification is performed. It's another one of those subjects that could be its whole own episode. I do encourage everyone to look up that information independently. In this case, though, most of the clinical signs at presentation are consistent with peripheral vestibular disease. So, for example, there's not conscious proprioceptive deficits, but the patient is lethargic and the puppy seemed more quiet than normal. Those are potential alterations in mental status, and that would fit more with central disease. So I think for building our differential list, we really need to kind of keep both 
peripheral and central causes on our list. So, JJ, Mm -hmm. what sorts of things would we be thinking about in this patient? Mm, Toxicity is a possibility. Yeah. And honestly, if I were seeing this case in person, you know, a young puppy, um, sudden onset of neurologic signs, I think toxicity needs to be pretty high on the list. Mm -hmm. I would also want to know about the specific history of the patient, like, Could there have been any trauma that's not evident on an external exam? You know, did someone drop the puppy? Did he hit his head? Mm -hmm. You know, something like that. Sometimes we might not know when a traumatic event has occurred. uh, And sometimes we might kind of know about it, but maybe the owners might be a little bit nervous to mention that. Mm -hmm. So to really delicately question the owners about that sort of thing, I think is a good idea. Yes. What else? Uh, possible distemper virus. Yeah, I think that's a great um, differential. So we have a patient with a vaccination history, but he had only received the one vaccination um, four days ago, and he's from a litter of puppies housed outdoors. And the uh, you know the the mom wasn't fully vaccinated for sure. We're mm-hmm. we're just kind of not sure about that. So generally, when I think there's unknown vaccine history i tend to kind of just assume that means no (laughs) Mm. you know that that means no no vaccine history (laughs) if the owners aren't (laughs) sure that means it didn't happen (laughs) generally Mm -hmm. sometimes we can have congenital vestibular disease congenital meaning present from birth uh, but the symptoms won't necessarily show up from day one sometimes it takes a few months up to like three months for them to develop symptoms. So he would fit into that age range. So we'll keep that on the list. Mm-hmm. Maybe a possible middle ear infection. Mm-hmm. Or internal ear infection. Yeah. Otitis media or interna can cause these sorts of symptoms. And on physical exam, if you'll remember, the puppy was painful, kind of, we thought, maybe intermittently over palpation of the bulla. Mm-hmm. And... When we look at the external ear canals, even if they look normal and the tympanic membranes are intact, that doesn't actually rule out a middle or inner ear issue. I've actually personally seen patients that had normal otoscopic exam and then ultimately ended up being diagnosed with an inner ear infection on MRI. So we can't rule that out. I think that that needs to stay on our list. So then we start getting into some of the more weird and scary type things. So mm-hmm. fungal disease, mm-hmm. any type of, uh, you know, disseminated fungal disease could potentially cause these types of symptoms. But he's a little on the young side. I mean, it doesn't rule it out completely, but I, I typically think of more young adult dogs uh, and and not as many puppies developing fungal disease but it still needs to be on our radar possible parasite issue toxoplasmosis mm-hmm. yeah um, kind of weird stuff weird yeah. stuff so neospora toxoplasmosis uh, some sort of a bizarre migration of a larval parasite uh, again not common but technically on the list of possibilities yeah the words migration of parasites just <laughs> Don't give you the warm fuzzies. Right. Yeah, that's not I don't want not parasites ideal. migrating anywhere. <laughs> Unless it's away from me. <laughs> then there's one more differential that's often overlooked but needs to be on our list anytime we have a patient with neurologic symptoms of any type for any reason, and particularly one that's not been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And that's rabies. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. 
So this puppy was taken into the hospital. Uh, remember, this is a an ER situation. So he's actually presenting to a referral hospital, like at a university at their ER department. So they did go ahead and perform some blood testing for the uh, on the patient. Blood was drawn for a CBC chemistry profile. And they found a couple of really mild changes, nothing super significant. There was a mildly decreased urea nitrogen. There was a mild hyperglycemia, so mildly elevated blood sugar, and a mild hypoglobulinemia, so mildly low globulin, a type of protein. These abnormalities weren't really seen as clinically significant, uh, though they did say, you know, well, he's got a little bit of a low BUN. Could we maybe need to consider something like a hepatic encephalopathy, which occurs when the liver isn't functioning normally and we get um, neurologic symptoms from that? So they kind of added that onto the list of of possibilities, but there was not really anything definitive. And you know, further testing, big testing like this puppy would need, is not really available after hours in an emergency setting, just like in a people ER, we got to have to just stabilize that patient mm-hmm. and wait till we can get some further testing. Now, one important thing that happened was that during the blood draw, um, the puppy did bite a staff member. Oh, no. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the patient was hospitalized overnight with just supportive care, IV fluids and monitoring. While the veterinarian sort of talked to the owner about, you know, okay, here are the things that we're looking at uh, needing to test for. We're talking about for this type of issue, it's a pretty big workup. You know, uh, we're going to be talking about things like advanced imaging. We're going to be talking about things like sending in a lot of expensive blood tests, uh, maybe even urine tests for um, fungal disease. And We're going to be really needing to dig into this. It's going to be potentially expensive and frustrating. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, while we're waiting on results, we kind of have to just provide supportive care and see how we go. So he was hospitalized on IV fluids overnight and monitored kind of while we waited and while the owners thought about uh, the plan. Overnight, the puppy worsened, though. The caretakers noted worsening disorientation. He started having intermittent episodes of extremely depressed mentation, followed by periods of extreme agitation. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wandered in the kennel and would occasionally bite at the air as if attempting to snap at something that was imaginary. Mm -hmm. And then the nystagmus, those are those unusual eye movements, started changing. So when he originally presented, it was just horizontal nystagmus, but Now it became positional, so the nystagmus would change direction if he was positioned differently. And then sometimes it just transiently changed from horizontal to vertical. Now, with the emergence of these sorts of symptoms, we can say without a doubt that these are central signs of vestibular disease. So this dog has a brain problem going on. This is not an ear issue. Hmm. Within a few hours, the patient could no longer rise and attempted to bite anyone who tried to handle him. The owners were consulted uh, overnight to let them know that the patient was worsening, and they did ultimately elect euthanasia because of how rapidly he was worsening. And the patient was submitted for necropsy, partly, I think, because of the bite wound sustained to the staff member. So, you know, if we're looking at a patient passing away or being euthanized within 10 days of a bite, those guys must be tested for rabies because it's a public health risk. Mm -hmm. So the patient was sent for necropsy. 
and the necropsy results showed severe non-separative encephalitis with intracytoplasmic inclusion bodies or negri bodies. Those are present in rabies cases. Mm. And a final diagnosis of rabies was made by immunohistochemistry testing. So this was a rabid puppy. I don't like rabies. Yeah, me neither. It's scary. As far as follow-up for this case, this was actually a case that was written up and published in a journal, and I'll provide that information for the citation there at the end and also in the show notes here. So this is a real case, but we can use it without reservation because it's, you know, published and generally available public knowledge. None of the other puppies or the dam were found to develop any signs of rabies. Hmm. So how the puppy developed rabies is unknown. Probably wildlife exposure somehow. Yeah, that's that's what they think. So this is a very sad outcome. Um, but luckily, the diagnosis was achieved. Um, everybody followed the rules as far as what needed to happen with the puppy going to necropsy. And we were able to intervene and get people treated for, for post-exposure. Yes, and, uh, that is ideal. <laughs> yes. So, JJ. Yes. What is rabies? It's damn scary is what it is. It is. It is a infectious fatal virus. It is an enveloped RNA virus of the Rhabdivirde family. It infects warm-blooded animals. So where all do we see rabies around the world? Oh, goody. So uh, it is present in North America, South America, Central America, Asia, Africa, Middle East, and some parts of Europe. So it is widespread. Oh, yeah. It's everywhere. And most places have it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there are some places that are considered rabies-free, right? Yes, for now. Okay. Um, of course, most of them are going to be an island. The areas that are considered rabies-free at this time are Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Ireland, Iceland, the UK, some Pacific islands, uh, parts of Scandinavia, and Antarctica. Frozen rabies. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can keep it out of Antarctica. Yeah, right. yeah, so these areas that are free of rabies have pretty stringent requirements for importation of domesticated animals, and this is why. Mm -hmm. They are very serious about not letting rabies into their population. Yeah, I remember it was a while back now, but I forget who the celebrities were, but I want to say it was Johnny Depp. They were going to Australia and they had dogs that they were bringing with them and they did not obey the quarantine laws and uh, all the things. They brought them in pretty much illegally and they were kind of threatened with jail time over it. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. rabies is a huge deal. I mean, mm -hmm. man, it's so uh, it's such a big deal. Uh -huh. It's a really big deal. We'll talk about why. So let's talk about the pathophysiology. After you're infected with rabies virus, rabies enters the peripheral nerves, and from there it travels towards the central nervous system. Now, this takes some time, and the amount of time that it takes for the rabies virus to reach the central nervous system varies. So the rabies virus can spread up to about 100 millimeters per day, and when we're talking about 100 millimeters, we mean like the distance that it travels on the nerve itself which is really interesting. Mm. But some sources talk about it being much slower than that. Like uh, 100 millimeters per day is the top speed, so it can go pretty slow. Rabies enters the spinal cord or brain stem, and then 
Once it's in the central nervous system, then it starts moving real quick. From there, it disseminates very rapidly. And it, it, spreads, to the, um, it spreads to the other parts of the body via the peripheral nerves, and now it's much faster. So before the top speed was 100 millimeters a day, now we're in the 100 to 400 millimeters a day mm. uh, range. And the rabies virus is headed there to the salivary glands where it's going to do the most replication. The incubation period before the development of neurologic signs varies, but it can be quite prolonged in some cases. So there's a few factors that influence how long the incubation period is. And by incubation period, we're talking about the time from infection till we're starting to see clinical signs. Those factors that determine the incubation period include the degree of innervation at the bite site, so how many nerves are handy to jump on onto and attach to, mm-hmm. the distance from the inoculation site to the spinal cord or brain. So if you get bitten on the face, that's that's much closer to the brain than if we got bitten on the toe. So if we get bitten on the toe, it takes much longer for symptoms to develop. If you get bitten on the face, generally a much shorter time frame. The variant of rabies virus involved also impacts how quickly the uh, signs develop. And then previous vaccination status of the animal. So the incubation period before development of clinical signs have been reported to range from three weeks all the way up to 24 weeks in dogs. The average time is three to eight weeks. And in cats, the range that's been reported is two weeks to 24 weeks, with the average being four to six weeks. And then in humans, in humans, <laughs> this period can be three weeks to years. I just read that, like, what, years? How, how does Years. That, how? Well, it might travel really, really slowly. That's frightening. Yep. Now, the average time for people from the bite or whatever the exposure is that gets you infected to the development of clinical signs is is three to six weeks. That's such a long time. Yeah, but what if it was flipping years? Like, that's crazy. You're like, oh, I got bit by this cat, and I'm fine. And then three years later, you're, you know, seizing and trying to chomp on people. Mm. If a zombie could happen. It apparently has been reported. So... Mm. That's why we don't quarantine people that get bitten. We quarantine the biter, right? What if, okay. what if the human is the biter? Oh, well, same thing. Yikes. It's actually very unusual for humans to transmit rabies to other humans. Not impossible, but it's much more common for humans to get infected via companion animals mm. or wildlife. Eek. So, now rabies virus spreads to the salivary glands via those cranial nerves And then that's how the rabies virus likes to spread to other things. So it spreads through saliva. The best way for it to replicate itself is to go to the salivary glands, make tons of itself, and then try to get uh, the saliva onto other things, right? Mm. So it just makes, makes sense. Large amounts of rabies virus is shed in saliva. Now that shedding, though, might be intermittent. And some patients will actually not be shedding virus yet when they develop clinical signs. And sometimes patients shed virus in the saliva before they develop clinical signs. So pretty much everything about rabies is variable. <laughs> and we're talking about averages. There are no 100% of the time situations with rabies. Mm. 
In general, though, once the rabies virus has spread to the salivary glands, the, the brain is already infected. It's got to go to the brain first. Usually the virus is excreted in saliva for a brief period of time before the onset of clinical signs, and then viral shedding in the saliva continues until death. The period of viral shedding before the onset of neurologic signs is typically somewhere in the one to five day range when there is natural infection. Mm -hmm. And then the prognosis is grave. Most patients with rabies die within 10 days of developing clinical signs. So what are those clinical signs? Well, there are a lot of them. I'm going to go through the clinical symptoms that we can see and some of the forms. But I think the big takeaway here about rabies is rabies can manifest as literally any type of neurologic symptom. Hmm. So you can't ever look at a patient with neurologic signs and say, that definitely isn't rabies because rabies always does X, Y, Z. That's not a thing. Any patient with neurologic symptoms needs to be considered a rabies suspect until proven otherwise. We might see aggressiveness, altered behavior. The patient might be nervous. Generally, the patient is not going to want to eat, so we're going to see anorexia. We see ataxia, which is that drunken, uncoordinated movement. Hyperesthesia, which is a heightened pain response. Photophobia, sensitivity to light. Disorientation. We might see a change in vocalization, and that has to do with the virus affecting the muscles in the neck. Inability to swallow, also because the virus affects the muscles in the neck. Excessive salivation, because the patient can't swallow, which helps the virus spread because it's spread via saliva, and we want to get as much saliva out there into the world as possible to spread ourselves around. Mandibular paralysis, uh, we might see cranial nerve deficits paraparesis, paralysis, seizures, coma, and death. And death typically occurs from respiratory paralysis or prolonged seizure activity. Now, remember, it can manifest as almost anything, okay? When we're talking classically, rabies has been thought of as two different, quote, types, the furious type and the paralytic type. But there's a little bit of overlap, and some patients might exhibit kind of a combo of both forms. Uh, during their illness. But for all patients, a prodromal phase occurs initially, and that lasts for two to three days. During that time, the pets will be nervous, anxious, and we're going to see some behavioral changes. The pet might have a fever during that time, and there might be evidence of itching or pruritus, or the pet might be licking or chewing at the wound that was the infective wound. After the prodromal phase, we might see a furious phase. The furious phase lasts anywhere from one to seven days, and this involves aggression and unpredictable behavior. The patients might snap at imaginary objects, eat unusual objects. Patients who are housed in cages might attack the fronts of the enclosure. We're going to see incoordination, disorientation, a heightened pain response, tremors and seizures. Some patients die during this furious phase, but others might enter a paralytic phase. Cats tend to develop the furious phase more consistently than do dogs. The paralytic phase, you know, if the patient has gone through a furious phase, the paralytic phase will occur after that. Cats tend to develop the paralytic phase after the furious phase. Dogs tend to develop the paralytic phase without exhibiting the furious phase. But 
any patient can exhibit any signs at any time, so none of these are, are strict rules. The paralytic phase usually starts between two and four days after the development of clinical signs, but it, there can be a range of uh, one to 10 days, so it might not develop until 10 days after the development of the initial symptoms. The patients start to excessively salivate and show an inability to swallow. Initial paralysis might occur in the extremity that was bitten and then progress to generalized paralysis. With this phase, we'll also see a change in vocalization, cranial nerve deficits. They might develop laryngeal paralysis, and they might develop mandibular paralysis. And then coma and death from respiratory paralysis usually occurs within two to four days of entering this paralytic phase. Mm. Yeah. How is it diagnosed? Well, it's important to remember that there is no definitive antemortem diagnosis. It's not possible. What that means is while the patient is still alive, there's no reliable way to rule out rabies. So diagnosis is typically performed on necropsy, which is the animal version of an autopsy, so a postmortem examination. And that's going to involve a few different types of tests, which I'm going to go over here in just a minute. Now, in most areas, um, there are going to be legal requirements for testing when there's a possibility of human exposure. This varies by region. The World Health Organization does have some specific recommendations, but as far as legally, um, the legal requirements are going to vary based on um, your state. And then if you're outside of the United States, it's it might also be variable depending on where you live. So if you guys are working in veterinary medicine and you're listening to this podcast, making sure you stay up on your local legal requirements is, is going to be really important. So there are a few types of tests for rabies. We're going to focus on the ones that are used the most widely. The first test that we're going to talk about is the direct fluorescent antibody or DFA test. This is the test that's the most widely used and the preferred method of diagnosis in the U.S., to do this test, the brain must be protected from damage in order that for the test to be accurate. You know, there cannot be trauma to the head for any reason. The head, or if it's a small animal like a bat, the whole body needs to be cooled immediately after euthanasia or death. It needs to be refrigerated. Not frozen. Not frozen, yeah. Freezing the head is not recommended since thawing the tissue can damage it and that might impact our ability to see the changes that we're looking for. Specimens are sent for laboratory testing ASAP. And again, depending on where you live, there's going to be different regulations and procedures. So you need to make sure that you keep yourself and your staff familiarized with those. That way we don't have a rabies suspect and now everyone's scrambling on a Saturday night to like try to figure out what do we do? What do we do? Mm -hmm. And no one's open. <laughs> So, so keep abreast of that so that way you have an action plan and you know what to do and everybody can just respond calmly. For optimal sensitivity, the brainstem, thalamus, cerebellum, and hippocampus are sampled and examined. And then direct fluorescent antibody testing is positive in affected animals before they manifest clinical signs. So this is why it's the preferred test. Mm. So we can take those animals that aren't clinical yet and still get an accurate diagnosis. The next type of test is direct immunohistochemistry testing. Direct Rapid Immunohistochemical Test, or DRIT, was developed by the Centers of Communicable Diseases in 2005. 
and it appears to have the same sensitivity and specificity as the DFA test. The DRIT test has the added benefit of producing a reaction that can be seen with just a light microscope, so it can be used in third-world settings to make a more rapid diagnosis. And then there's histopathology, so examination of the brain um, for those inclusion bodies that we talked about earlier, the intracytoplasmic inclusions or negri bodies. But negri bodies can't typically be found until neurologic signs are present. So if we have a situation where a bite has occurred, uh, but the patient isn't clinical yet, we wouldn't really expect for those changes to be there, which is why the DFA test is preferred. And negri bodies are found in approximately 50% of cases that are positive by DFA. So, so say we were just trying to rely on histopath, well, we would miss half of the rabies exposures. That's not good. <laughs> yeah, that would be bad, very bad. So for that reason, histopathology is not often used for routine diagnosis. And then I also included some information about another type of test that's not really widely used, just because in a perfect world, it would be such a great test, but it just doesn't work out that great. Mm -hmm. So it, that test is the salivary latex agglutination test. And it was developed in 2000 to detect rabies antigen in dog saliva. It was never tested or applied to clinical cases, though. This would be exciting because if we could detect it in saliva, then maybe we could not have to euthanize rabies suspects right off the bat, mm -hmm. you know? But the problem with this is that not all infected dogs excrete rabies virus in their saliva. And those that do might do that intermittently. And so there would be major concerns about the accuracy of the testing in individual situations. And since the main reason that we test for rabies in animals is to prevent humans from dying, this would not be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice, but... It would be nice. Hmm. So... That incubation period has still got me kind of like, mm. so mm -hmm. if it varies, it can be that long. Why do we only quarantine rabies suspects for 10 days? That is a great question and one that I had to look up. Um, because when you're getting into rabies, you start looking and seeing all these different case reports and all these different ranges. And you're like, man, all these times, this adds up to more than 10 days. What are we doing here? <laughs> okay. Um, so the answer is that. We need to think about rabies quarantine from the perspective of why we do it. So when we're doing a rabies quarantine, we are not trying to catch rabies in this animal to try to treat the animal. If the animal is symptomatic, the animal has no chance, okay? What we're trying to do is to keep the people safe. So when we're instituting rabies quarantine, the question is, not necessarily, will this animal ever develop rabies? The question is, does the animal have infectiveness for rabies during the time period where an exposure occurred, right? Mm -hmm. So that tends to be about 10 days. Now, we can't always speak in absolutes, because if you look and you say, okay, well, in this one case, the, you know, it was excreted in the saliva up to five days, but then this other case, the patient didn't die until, you know, 14 days after the clinical signs. And so if you add those together, that might be, you know, over 20 days, you know, yeah. but most of the time, the vast majority of cases, the patient will 
have a period of not longer than 10 days between secreting virus in their saliva and dying, Mm -hmm. honestly. That makes sense. Or at least the development of clinical signs. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're at. And once clinical signs develop, the animals most of the time die pretty fast. Mm -hmm. So I did find one retrospective study, and we'll post this information in um, in the notes for the show. The study looked at hundreds and hundreds of rabies quarantine cases over like multiple decades. It was a retrospective study to look and see, you know, like how often did our, you know, typical 10-day quarantine process result in the right choices and the right outcomes. And after looking at all of those cases, they found that the standard 10-day quarantine period, which is the period that's recommended by the World Health Organization, was very successful in identifying rabies cases. Mm. So that's the good news, is that the the time frame that we're dealing with, that the 10 days that everyone kind of knows, when we've looked at it retrospectively, we see that it's very effective in identifying rabies cases. So that's good. Good to know. That's That's the reason we do it. It's always, you know, comforting when you see that somebody's like, okay, Yes, we developed this a while back, but let's just make sure it's still accurate instead of yeah. the whole, eh, it's not broke, don't fix it, don't worry about yeah. it. And yeah, it is good. Mm-hmm. The retrospective study was published in 2007, so it's relatively recent mm-hmm. still. And it looked at cases uh, between 1985 and 2005 mm-hmm. and collected data from cases involving over 1,200 dogs and over 300 cats. So it was quite a an extensive retrospective study. Good job, people. Yeah. So what is the prognosis for patients with rabies? Yeah. Uh, The prognosis is extremely poor. Um, For animals, uh, they die, Mm -hmm. uh, all of them. Only 14 people have ever survived rabies, and that's for a virus that dates back to at least 2000 BC and is referenced in Mesopotamian writings. So out of all of that history, there are only 14 people that have ever survived. The prognosis is very bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and these 14 people, you know, we're talking about this is extremely recent developments that people have been able to survive this. We're going to talk about this a little bit later in this episode. Um, but in general, rabies, terrifying and almost universally fatal. Yeah, it's not. You know, of all the things to to take you out, that sounds like one of the worst to have to endure yeah. before you get exactly. But super preventable. Mm, yeah. Now with our modern vaccinations and and our stringent vaccination of companion animals, the incidence of rabies is much lower than it ever has been historically. So that's the good news. Yes, I'm going to climb on my soapbox for just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to say <laughs> that I feel it is very unfair. That technicians are their uh, uh, insurance does not cover rabies vaccinations. Health insurance? Yes. Yeah. Mine didn't either. I really, really, I really dislike that. Yeah. I, when I, I was vaccinated for rabies when I went to work at Scott Ritchie Research Center mm-hmm. and I had to pay out of pocket. It was about $500, mm-hmm. I want to say. It's not cheap. Um, to get my, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Well, I th- I mean, I think it does come down to economics mm-hmm. uh, wholly. I think it comes wholly down to economics. Now, insurance generally does not cover uh, pre-exposure. 
when I was, again, I had, you know, gotten this job or whatever, um, you know, my insurance was like, <laughs> we're not covering that because yeah. it's your, basically they were saying it's your choice to be employed in this um, type of field. So that's not our responsibility yeah. kind of a thing, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's, it's just all economic. Now in a perfect world, do I think that veterinary technicians should all be vaccinated? I do. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> Yeah. What? I, how do how do I make that happen? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's just um, the major stuff would have to change for that to be economically feasible. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, uh, it seems like right now the um, the most economical approach is the try not to get bitten, and if you get bitten, test the patient. Yeah. That's that's actually much less expensive than vaccinating everybody. It's a, it, I mean, it is one of those things where you have to kind of assess risk. But, you know, generally, if you're working with a really high risk population, like if you're a wildlife rehabilitator, <laughs> you absolutely need to be vaccinated mm-hmm. for rabies. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It depends on individual risk. And then, you know, where we're at right now, it's more economical to, um, to cast a, a wide net on the, testing side than it is to cast a wide net on the vaccination side yep. so so that's where we're at <laughs> so jj mm-hmm. how prevalent is rabies so there's about twenty-seven thousand to thirty thousand cases in animals reported each year but the incident is actually higher and that's worldwide yeah. in the united states animal cases average around six thousand per year with the majority of them involving wildlife uh, dogs are the most responsible for infecting humans internationally, um, and most cases are in Asia and Africa. One of the most important things about rabies is its zoonotic potential or the potential for it to be spread from animals to humans. So tell me about zoonotic potential. First, let's define zoonotic potential or zoonosis in general, which basically just means that a disease or virus that an animal carries, it can be transmitted to humans. So uh, there's about 55,000 documented human deaths from rabies per year, which is not cool. And it also makes you wonder about the undocumented, like what that number would rise to. Because say you have somebody that has, like you were saying before, some of these nonspecific neurological symptoms. What if, you know, you end up dying and you don't have the typical symptoms. How big is the number for real? Because rabies is zoonotic and it's such a serious virus, uh, there's lots of laws as to what happens to your pet, a suspected animal that has rabies or any animal that you don't know the vaccine history. Typically what happens is there's the 10-day quarantine from the day of the bite. And that is just because of what you said. If the pet's infected, Within 10 days, you're typically going to see some clinical signs because it should have progressed to that point. In some cases, quarantine can occur at the home of the pet. That seems like that's the more popular way of doing quarantine nowadays. Used to, I mean, I can remember working at vet clinics where just about all the time there was some animal there quarantined for rabies. But I feel like some clinics have kind of moved away from doing that. And I don't know if it's, you know, lack of boarding space or what, but. Um, well, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't like to. <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, the reason that I have run into the most often has been uh, how, how I'm trying to find a diplomatic way to say this. Uh, the patients that typically present for in-hospital rabies quarantine are generally like aggressive mm-hmm. and very difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. You're trying to house a super aggressive pet who you also can't have direct contact with because it's under rabies quarantine. You're not allowed to do any procedures to it because it's under rabies quarantine. Like, mm-hmm. And then you're trying to also operate a normal hospital at the same time. It's just very difficult. It is. That and there's always some drama surrounding rabies quarantine. Yeah, um, indeed. The number of people that refuse to pay for it, that you get... They never come to pick up the animal, so now you're stuck with an animal that's aggressive. Like, it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, it does not surprise me, is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Or that a lot of people are being like, no, we're not going to deal with that anymore. Quarantine is only applicable for dogs, cats, and ferrets. Uh, for humans that have been bit, the post-exposure prophylaxis is most effective at preventing rabies infection. If you visit your doctor's office to treat a bite, they're supposed to be reporting that bite to the local health department. Hopefully they do. If they don't, mm. I would, you know, do it yourself. Make sure it gets reported. It's important that that happens. If you don't seek medical care for a bite, number one, you're asking for problems, but especially if it's a cat bite, but um, you should report it as well. And by reporting it, then the owner will be contacted if there is, you know, contact information. <laughs> uh, but the owner will be contacted and then they'll be required to do quarantine. But it's got to get reported. Veterinarians should report any potential rabies cases in pets or any potential human exposure to their local health department. Any additional information that you would ever want to need, um, the best place to go is the CDC. Uh, you can visit their website on rabies virus, and we'll include that website in the show notes. So, G, mm-hmm. tell me about some history of rabies. So the history of rabies is fascinating, (laughs) to me at least. And I could spend hours telling you all about the history of rabies, but I kind of tried to whittle it down to just like the top things so that our episode didn't go on until the end of time. (laughs) But rabies is very, very, very old. How old is it? It's very old. (laughs) The oldest known reference is in a Mesopotamian document dating to 1930 BC. It probably originated in the Old World. The first epizootic in the New World occurred in Boston in 1768. From there, it spread to other states and to the French West Indies. And in the 19th century, rabies was like a, a terrible problem. And it was feared, so maybe even to an irrational degree of fear. It was super common. There was tons of wildlife. There's now domesticated animals, and we have no treatment, no vaccine. So rabies was a a huge deal. People forget or don't realize how big of a deal rabies has been historically Mm -hmm. as far as people dying from it Mm -hmm. horribly. Because most people alive today have been alive in an era of uh, vaccination of companion animals. They tend to think of rabies as a no big deal sort of a thing. Rabies is a big deal. Mm -hmm. In the 19th century, it was not uncommon for people who suffered bite wounds to commit suicide or to be killed by other people due to a concern for rabies. 
the first person to ever survive rabies without previous vaccination was a girl, a teenage girl. She was infected in 2004 by a bat. She became ill three weeks later. And to treat her, she was essentially placed in a medically induced coma, and she eventually recovered. Um, and since then, she's gone on to like have a family and that sort of thing, which is really amazing. Mm. And we talked about this earlier, but only 14 people have ever survived historically. The type of treatment that this girl was given, where she was essentially placed in this medically induced coma, this doesn't always work. So there have been other human rabies patients for which this type of treatment has been attempted, and they died. Mm. So this isn't like a slam dunk. Now that we've got rabies, now we know how to treat it. It's not like some magical cure. This was just this girl getting super duper lucky. Yeah. So we can't lean on this as a way to 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 really treat rabies. Prevention is the key mm-hmm. here. Also, that type of treatment is incredibly expensive. I mean, talk about expensive. That, I mean, God, incredibly expensive to be in a coma for months. Mm-hmm. Then you have to go through rehabilitation and all of those things. I mean, my God. As far as the history goes, I would like to briefly discuss rabies and its potential as the source of various myths and legends. And those include myths of vampirism, Mm -hmm. zombie lore, and also werewolves. So when I was thinking about rabies as a potential basis for the development of legends, I was thinking mostly, oh, well, zombies, that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. But in researching this, I actually discovered that originally zombie lore didn't didn't really include an infectious element. So we think that the idea of zombies sort of originated in Haiti, um, but it was mostly like a curse-based situation and not like an infectious sort of situation. Hmm. The current modern-day thought of some sort of like infectious zombie virus kind of occurred like post-George Romero, Night of the Living Dead, because even in that, it wasn't really contagious. It was just everyone that died came back, right? But then it sort of evolved into this bite. But there's no doubt that rabies is the model for that. Um, And even the creators of movies like 28 Days Later have said, we were thinking rabies when we made this Mm -hmm. uh, film or we came up with this plot. Mm -hmm. But now, classically, vampirism is very interesting as a potential for being inspired by rabies virus. Yeah, I wouldn't so, think of vampire. Explain that one. <laughs> well, let me tell you all about it, JJ. Okay. So, there are several things that we see in human rabies victims that are directly correlated to these ideas that we have about classic vampires. And I'll just start going down the list. So there's this idea that vampires would not show up in mirrors or be fearful of mirrors, avoid mirrors. Well, people with rabies get violently agitated when confronted with their own reflection in a mirror. Really? And in fact, one sort of quote, test for rabies in people back in the olden days was to hold up a mirror. And if the person tried to attack themselves, that was, quote, positive for rabies. And if they didn't have a reaction, then they didn't have rabies. I wonder why that is. Is it because they see somebody that's showing is just as much aggression as they are or just something? I think it's just 
I think it's just something that close, like like the dogs and cats that just attack okay, the air yeah. or things that aren't there. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So then there's this idea of um, vampires like salivating and mm. like having blood dripping from their fangs. Well, people with rabies obviously profusely salivate and sometimes they'll also often have bloody secretions in that saliva. Um maybe um even from like dental disease and stuff like that right mm. if they have bad gingivitis and they've got a little bleeding anyway and they're not swallowing that and now it's coming out so if you think about um these people with this saliva and blood dripping off of their fangs like what does that remind you of a vampire historically vampires are thought to be very like seductive and uh, sexual creatures. Well, an unfortunate side effect of rabies in people is uh, like nonstop arousal and intumescence. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, people um, who have rabies will sometimes go through periods of incessant sexual behavior, like nonstop sexual behavior. And then Finally, there's, like, aversion to strong smells, so, like, garlic, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, lastly, photophobia, which is avoiding light. And what do vampires do? They only come in at night. And they catch on fire in the sun. That's right. They have dramatic reactions to bright light. Or they sparkle if you, you know, head down that lane. I don't <laughs> think that that is a historic description. Nope. And then lastly, there's the werewolf connection. So, um, and that mostly involves like, you know, you are bitten by an animal that's behaving a certain way. Now you're behaving like that animal. Mm -hmm. So the association with a bite, bite wound transmitting disease. Yeah, that's, I can see werewolves and zombies. The vampire, I was like, that's, just, I mean, it makes sense, but it's still like. Yeah. But the vampire is the strongest historic connection. That's so weird to me. Because, I mean, I think of somebody yeah. rabid, and I'm, I just think of this just crazy, frenzy, drooling mess. And then you think of vampires, and they're like, you know, I've also done your blood and all suave and whatnot, and not messy. But it's going to hurt my feelings, because I kind of like vampires. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, there's even a study published a PubMed, like a journal article about rabies and vampires. Hmm. You know, something else, probably the whole bat thing. Oh, yeah, the whole bat thing. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Girl, you're right. The bat thing. There we go. The it's bat explained. Thing. Uh, in September of 1998, uh, an article was published in the Neurology Journal called Rabies, A Possible Explanation for the Vampire Legend. <laughs> Um, <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> There's one of those for everything. This was authored by Jay Gomez Alonso. And this details some of that information that I just kind of summarized. So if you're interested in this, you should read this article because it's really exciting. <laughs> um, and the abstract is, in the 18th century, belief in vampires, allegedly dead persons who left their graves and killed people and animals, raised great concern in the Balkans and in and an extensive debate in Europe. This historic phenomenon still awaits a comprehensive explanation. This article proposes that rabies may have played a key role in the development of the vampire legend, 
given the coincident time of the phenomena and the striking similarities between them. So there's a major outbreak in the 1700s of rabies in this area. And so they, hmm. the author is saying, I think that this is why the myths of vampires became like so prevalent in, in this area during this time period. Hmm. So you should read that article if you're interested in we- weird stuff like I am. Well, I mean. Yep. <laughs> well, JJ, have we thoroughly discussed rabies? I mean, I feel like it could go on forever, but I think we've we've uh, touched on the major things. Sometimes I get a wild hair and feel the need to like watch YouTube videos of people that have rabies just to, you know, remind myself as to why I need to avoid it as if I needed a reminder. But yeah, it's it's very graphic, Mm -hmm. but there are videos of people and animals uh, that you can find online who have rabies. Watch if you want to proceed with caution. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the veterinary field and you haven't seen those sorts of videos, it's probably a good idea to watch them. But just be aware that it's not a pleasant thing. No, it's terrible. It's very bad. All right, JJ. Well, I think that wraps up our topic for this week. Yes. What's the best thing that's happened to you this week? Oh, 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 I know. I know. We had a Addisonian crisis show up two days ago. What? Uh-huh. You did? Yep. I mean, I happen to know the dog fairly well and know that it uh, that it was an Addisonian patient, so... Okay, so it was uh, one with a history yeah, of Addison's. Yeah, so it was, it was okay. a little bit cheating, but... Um, yeah, that is cheating. Yeah, I, when the technician <laughs> came walking by with it and the dogs just laid out, I went, mm, I know what that is. Probably about uh, 10 minutes later, they came up there frantically paging me. So I go back there and they're like, we can't get an IV catheter in this dog. Will you try? And I'm like, I haven't put an IV catheter successfully, mind you, because I have attempted once at a different place and I failed, but... I haven't attempted to put an IV catheter in anything in about a year, probably. So I was like, you call me in for this? Okay. And <laughs> I'm looking at this, you know, small animal. And I mean, it's a toy breed with no blood pressure. And they have already attempted and blown multiple places in three out of four legs. Mm, oh, JJ, you only got one out of four legs. <laughs> and I wasn't about to use the one in case, you know, a doctor needed to try. So I went for one that had only been poked one time and they had gone pretty low. So I went high. And I mean, I only was able to get a 24 gauge in it, but I got it in there first try. And I was like, I still got it. Yay. But <laughs> yes. And I'm happy to report that um, the uh, dog was able to be discharged home after only about 48 hours of hospitalization and is doing way, way better than it was. So yeah, Addisonian. Yay. Yay. What about you? Okay, I hit um, I hit an all-time um, paused bench press personal record at 192 pounds Ooh. ahead of my meat. So that's good. Yes, yes. Pretty excited. If I can do that on meat day... I'll be pretty excited. Get it, G. That would be a big deal. All right. Well, if you have cases, questions, submissions for our veterinary advice column, or anything else that you want to send us, drop us a line. And our email address is introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, at introvets. 
Also, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.